What's the matter? She's not here. What do you mean she's not? Look for yourself. Tina? You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. And I'm Kevin. And I don't know what it is. I always feel like that time I have to be quiet, my throat wants to do weird things. So I'm just like, <laughs> welcome to the show, folks. You it's know. a great thing about sitting next to a mute button. <laughs> I, I don't have that, but I just have this overflowing ashtray full of cigarettes. I feel like Sterling has influenced <laughs> me to smoke uh, Chesterfields, like for the purest taste now. Um, so... I uh, hope you guys enjoyed last episode with The Fugitive and didn't think too hard about the ending and um, about what that means, because I'm sure it was all, you know, good intentions, but, it had, you know, just weird, you know, but fun episode. Um, and yeah, I, uh, yeah. We, we just discovered. Uh, sorry about the week off here. Had some uh, personal issues going on, but uh <laughs> We just discovered that I totally forgot what the last episode was. So. <laughs> well, you told me that you want to take a week off because you had met this kindly old man that could change shapes and you needed to help him. So he was like, I promise I'll make you a prince. So, and then, and then you came back. So I don't know what happened there, but yeah, I don't know. Paul was really <laughs> concerned about the amount of time I was spending with this old man, but yeah, uh, I was just, I just kept day drinking and then yelling at you when you try to go to sleep. So that's what was, <laughs> what was going on. So yeah, um, I feel, I feel like it's been forever though. I've, I'm so excited to talk about this episode. Yeah, I, as um, as am I. So this one, um, I, I feel like so again the pedigree of of it and its ripple effect throughout pop culture is one of those things that I was familiar with it but didn't know what this episode was. So that's a weird thing to know the ins and outs of it, but to not realize it was tied to a specific episode of the Twilight Zone. Like, uh, cause I feel like recently we've just been talking about, um, with the serve man. And then, uh, when I'm on, on the other show that I do uh, invasion of the podcast, watching the shining, there's a lot of like stuff, the Simpsons of mind for the Treehouse of terror. I didn't know that, that they specifically did this episode in an episode of Treehouse of terror. And I've known that segment for years. It did not realize it was a twilight zone episode. Yeah. Again, I haven't seen that one either. <laughs> Apparently, I got to catch up on this uh, Treehouse of Terror. Oh my goodness, <laughs> it's a classic. Like I, I don't know why I was only able to find the first half of the segment and post on the Facebook, but I told everybody it was a teaser because it just stops halfway through. But, but yeah, um, like the the Homer three or Homer cubed uh, segment. It was like it was like season five, so it's been out for like you know twenty plus years. I mean, you gotta get on that and watch it. It's it's wonderful. Yeah, just uh, don't spoil it for me. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, I, I will end up mentioning as we go along some of the similarities between that and, and this episode, and they're oddly specific. And I did not realize that they were direct references to this episode until watching it for the first time. So, so I guess maybe we should just stop dancing around and, and say what it is. It is a little girl lost season three, episode 26. Um, getting there. Yeah, we're getting there. Um, we have like another 11 episodes to go in the season because TV back then went for like a whole year as opposed to like 10 episodes now. Um, so air date is March 16th, 1962. Number one film state fair. We talked about that previously. Number one song. Hey baby by Bruce, uh, Chanel or channel. Is it Chanel? Is that, that I don't know. Um, I feel like that's sure. a song that's played Both. every, every Both time. Correct. <laughs> it's, it's a song that's played like by like every high school band. So, all right. So that's the, you've, you've heard it. Um, so on this, on this date, uh, flying tiger line flight seven, three, nine, which by the way, flying tiger, that's a cool name for an airline, uh, a Lockheed constellation airliner carrying 96 army personnel and a crew of 11. I guess it wasn't airline. I guess it was just a military plane. Uh, was carrying this crew to the Philippines disappeared at one thirty AM local time, uh, after, uh, taking off from Guam, despite a massive search in the Pacific ocean, no trace of the airliner nor the 107 persons on board were ever found. That, that's that's a sad story. I wonder if they went back in time and saw a claymation dinosaur first. That's my that's my one question I have about Flying Tiger Line Flight Seven Three Nine. Did they? I wonder if uh, maybe they went into the fourth dimension. <laughs> I don't know if that's insensitive, but they could be there still. All you hear is like in the distance, you Roger, Roger. You're like, where's that coming from? You know, like, <laughs> and they're running all over the airport and the the landing strip trying to find them. Um, and then they call the, the local neighborhood physicist over to try to find what happened to the flight. As um, we all do. <laughs> as we all do. <laughs> uh, I cannot wait to talk about this episode, but there are some strange things that happened during it. So, uh, yeah, let's just uh, get to cast and crew because that's all I have is uh, a flight disappeared and was never found, which seems oddly pertinent to the episode. And I did not realize that until you pointed it out. Yep. So this episode was directed by Paul Stewart, who uh, didn't have too many directing credits, uh, mostly TV work. But more uh i I don't want to say better known because he was a character actor um he was in some stuff that i was familiar with but i i'd be hard pressed to recognize his face but uh most famously he was in citizen kane and the uh, the movie that came out last year other side of the wind Mm -hmm. with orson welles so i i've yet to see other side of the wind i've heard uh mixed reviews but it's one of those things just kind of with its historical importance, I, I I'm gonna have to check it out at some point. But I mean, if you work with Orson Welles, it's that's a that's a big that's a big thing in your career. And I think he worked with him on his radio show he as did. well, and had a hand in writing the radio play for War of the Worlds. Yeah, he was a, a, a member, the most famous radio play of all time. It, it's true, other than the one that we did for Strange Highways Live. Um, a yes, of I mean we have a couple hundred <laughs> views. <laughs> It's, We're it's, neck and neck it with it. It is on par <laughs> with War of the Worlds, right? Um, so, um, yeah, he was a member of the Mercury Theater and was an associate producer in War of the Worlds, uh, like friend of Orson Welles. Uh, he he got talked into doing Citizen Kane because of Welles. And he was the one that um, he didn't have many lines, but he was like, he says, let me tell you about Rosebud or something to that effect. Like he launches the story about what goes on with the Citizen Kane, um, right. which then was like, or something. What I don't know what he said. It's like, it's like people consider the greatest film of all time. I can't even quote it correctly. And I, and I love the film. I mean, it's, it, it is one of those things that I don't feel like it ages as much as other cinema back then, because it's still, there's so many 
modern things that go on in that film storytelling wise that are still things that are used now because they're effective. And it's crazy how, how the transitioning and editing in that film still feel fresh to me. It's it's just, it's crazy. Um, but yeah, other side of the wind was the uncompleted, uh, Orson Welles film that was uh, bought up by Netflix, like you mentioned last year, and that they finished it with, I don't know if that means that they just put together a cut based upon the footage they had or, or, or input or whatever, but in, until last year, this was like the famously unreleased Orson Welles film. So even if it is a mixed review, it is worth the watch because if Netflix didn't like spend the money, no one may have ever seen this. So like, good on them. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and it, I've, I, pretty sure i've talked about it on here if not on other podcasts one of my favorite films was almost lost that wake and fright the australian Mm movie um i mean that was one of those films that was almost lost the time so i i always have a soft spot for stuff that ends up getting a release like way past the point of when it (laughs) was supposed to uh from what i know about that i believe they just cut a final version of the film as close as what they could with the material that they had. Okay. I don't think they went back and like reshot anything. <laughs> they, I think they, they brought, just they cleaned up the material in. and re-edited it. A stand-in for Orson Welles. Like, yeah. <laughs> like just, they cut in footage from that family guy joke about him talking about peas or whatever. Like it would be like, <laughs> no, no. Um, so quick question to you. Like it, in terms of these films that are quote unquote lost or they're, they're found partial, like, do you think it's just better to have it out there for people to kind of see what was going on? Or if it wasn't complete to the creator's vision, is it better unseen? Like, I, I like I feel like we have the ability now to put anything out there. So, I don't know. Like, I just, I wonder if Wells himself would be happy that this did get released, even if he didn't have Final Cut on it. Yeah, that's, that's a rough question. Um, I feel like... I don't know. I feel like Wells probably would have been drunk and said, go for it. Well, but uh, <laughs> the only the only film he ever actually had absolute career control over was Citizen Kane. And after the production, like the troubled production and, and the, the lengthy production on that, anything else he produced after that, like the studio was like watching over him. So this this one probably wouldn't have been that far off from like the constant scrutiny of other people. So I don't know if he would have still been like at least at least what I was trying to say is out there for everybody. Like, I don't know. It's, 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 it would be like finding like um like an unfinished Hitchcock film and be like, well, we could see what he's going for, but it's not a complete work, you know? Like, Yeah, I, I think you kind of have to put that asterisk next to it and be like, well, we'll never know exactly how it was going to turn out, but it, it, there's always that curiosity with any of those things. Like, I mean, look at, there was the Nicolas Cage, um, what was it, Superman Um, that was possibly going to happen. What if they shot stuff for that, but never finished it? Like you'd want to see it, right? Yeah, that's (laughs) true. It's one of those like sick curiosities. You want to see these unfinished products, but (sighs) I mean, to be fair, I I think it's better that that we put it out. We we did cover Sterling's lost classics, you know, for better or for worse. So yeah, which Um, could definitely fall into that category. I mean, he didn't shoot anything for that. There was no, it was just the, the script. So, it's a little bit easier to take and uh, put together a final product with that. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think it's important we put it out there. So how do you feel about that versus like music where you have artists that 
Like um, I know recently the 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 Prince Vaults, like the people have been releasing like his estate have released a whole album of his like in in session, like working through some of his, his stuff. So he has different alternate takes of, of songs that he ended up like like finalizing later. But you kind of like see his process. Like, is that something that's important for the public to consume or the artist is like, no, 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 I, I would have released this if it was finished, but it's not like, I just, I, I feel like there's, um, I, it's I, a, it's a tightrope. Yeah. I can see both sides of it again. Like I'm interested. I I'm one of those people that when I get interested in something, I want to find everything I can about it. And I want to find every bit of media about it. So like me personally, I like to see it and it's still like recently I've, I've been kind of battling people about bringing back dead actors and putting them in films as like CG version versions of themselves. And, uh, I, I don't enjoy that. Neither I don't do I. like it. I no. feel like it's kind of gross. Um, but I feel like at least the musician, it was them doing it. Yeah. In the initial part. So I mean, I mean, it's a weird gray area. It's a tightrope, but I'd rather see the stuff get released and be put out into the fans' hands, um, than than just being buried and never seen again. Because especially with somebody like Prince or these big artists, there's so many people that love and adore them and respect their music or are influenced by their music. It's just it's great to hear like B sides or something that shows like, hey, not everything's polished and perfect. Like here you go. That's fair. And, and none of this has to do with Paul Stewart or this episode, but I was just curious as to, no. as to your thought about it, that. Yeah, it, it, It's a fine line because it, yeah. it kind of goes into that whole argument I was having about like who's really doing the performance if you bring back a dead actor to play a part in a film. Yeah. Like, because there was the Peter Cushing thing in Star Wars, which I still haven't seen it, so I don't know how they used it. But um, it's 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 okay. It's he's not in it long, but it's like you could have you could have written that story to have a reference to that character and had somebody else be the the yeah. face of it. You didn't yeah. have to have a minute. Like it was, it was okay. Like I mean, they didn't overdo it. But what's to say? Like, um, there was an uh, episode of Tales from the Crypt years ago where they used Humphrey Bogart's face and reflections. Cause it was a first person like detective story. And he was a guy who was like, you know, killed and like, but his story went on. So he kind of like, you know, was dealing with his, his perception of what was going on as like a dead body. But then every so often you see a reflection of himself and it was Humphrey Bogart. It's like, eh. like I get that you're going for like this kind of noir thing. And it was kind of a weird thing to do at the time. But like, did we need to have Humphrey Bogart's actual likeness in that episode? I just, it yeah. didn't, it, that it, it's weird. Yeah, like, it's weird. But everyone's, everyone's argument was like, well, the estate signed off for it. Yeah, but, but, uh, but that's so, not the actor. Like they, it's they, not they, the actor giving a performance. The estate wants that money. Like if Peter Cushing, yeah, exactly. yeah, if Peter Cushing's making money off a of rogue one, that means his estate's making money off a of rogue one. You know, like I just, and I, again, it's a, it's a character he's played before. So you can kind of assume how he would have played it, but I, I don't know. I just I don't like it, but like, I feel like you could have that kind of an argument with what you're asking. Like if an artist doesn't finish a product, do you still put this project out into the world without their blessing? Well, like, like it's, it, it is kind of a tightrope and it, it, it kind of falls into that same world. Well, I think I think one of the more interesting uh, outputs of that is that um, uh, Imaginarium of Dr. Dr. Parnass Parnassus, that's, that's how you say it, the Terry Gilliam film that Heath Ledger was making at the time that his death 
right after the dark Knight. So they ended up bringing in two or three different actors to play the same character, but they used this weird segue of walking through doors and then they would transition to Dr. Parnassus and that maybe it's not the real character. I, I haven't seen the film, but they would play Heath Ledger's role throughout the rest of the film. Like with the knowledge of like, Oh, this is the same character, but it's not the same actor. Like I'm okay with completing a work that way. Or even with like the crow where, you know, Brandon Lee shot most of his stuff already uh, before, you know, he had unfortunately died on set. So you're going to use a, some, some face swapping and stuff just to get the film completed. I think that's different than bringing somebody who's been dead and gone for like 30 plus years and bringing their, their face into a performance. I think that's, yeah. Weird. Cause yeah. especially with Brandon Lee, like, you know what he was going for with that performance, yeah. you know, how he would have played things, you know, it's, I, I th- maybe it's just because I'm such a big Peter Cushing fan. That one rubbed me the wrong way, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I know. I, I, so yeah, I, anyway, um, interesting, interesting sc- conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, again, not definitely not tied to this episode. This, this is, this is a higher a tier of conversation versus us making jokes about people falling out of windows or racehorses that are now dead. so you guys, yeah, should- I, I don't have the, I don't have the answer for any of those questions either. I think it's just, I don't think anybody does. You know, I think, it, I think it's, yeah. it's, it's what you can take. <laughs> I can take unreleased material being put out into the world. Um, I can't take making decisions for an artist and, um, bring them back from the dead to put them in film. So I, if, if you're okay with that, that's fine. Whatever. But <laughs> I, I have a point where I'm, <laughs> where I'm not for it. So I cannot wait for it, those new John Wayne Westerns that are going to come out. <laughs> well, that's, that was one of my things. I was like, would you guys be okay with like John Wayne and the rock in a film together? And ever <laughs> that backfired. Cause everyone was like, absolutely. So, okay. Oh God. All right. Oh, no, All right. Um, fine. <laughs> I mean, if it actually, if it was, if, if John Wayne was still here, absolutely. You know, like I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's yeah. you would have no way to know how he would have responded to acting with The Rock or performing on the film. Now, can we like, get? I just can we get John Wayne as Genghis Khan performing against The Rock? Can we get oh, that? <laughs> I mean, if they take his performance straight out of The Conqueror <laughs> and put him into a movie with The Rock, then I'd be okay with that because it's already a performance that he's given. That's fair. All right. <laughs> all right. I'm but glad. I'm not okay with that performance. So. I'm, I'm, I'm glad yeah. that we've, we've solved all of the problems of pop culture and Hollywood in the single pod podcast. So, yeah. all right. Stop um, resurrecting dead actors. That's right? all. So the big thing with Paul Stewart is you're right. We, we couldn't maybe pick him out like by face. Um, he got bored of acting. That's why he moved into directing. So like he ended up doing uh, some film stuff, some stage work. And then he only had like 19 directing credits, but it was more like, he was just like, I would rather just direct because that's, that's the bigger challenge than act. And the directing in this episode is pretty strong. So I'll give him credit for that. So like, good on him to be like, I'm just going to try something different. So uh, it's, it's unfortunate because I feel like he probably could have brought more to the Twilight Zone. I feel like this is a strong outing. I don't know why this was the only episode. Yeah, I couldn't find anything. doesn't seem like there was any falling out or yeah. any contracts or anything. It's just. Uh, they just never brought him back. Yeah. So, uh, so this this episode was written um, by Richard Matheson from his short story that was published in the Shores of Space, 1953. 
I'm sure well, it was uh, Amazing Stories. Oh, from okay. 1953, well, and then republished in a collection called, called The Shores, Shores of Space. Space. Well, all right. Well, that my accuracy is never good with this ep- with this podcast. So, congratulations. <laughs> um, so, and I just want to also point out that the we'll talk more about the the story versus the episode. I know because you read the story. Um, there, there was an original score by, uh, Bernard Herman. Good to see him back again. And oddly enough, he actually got like higher billing than the director when the credits played on this episode. I don't know if you noticed that or not. Like, I did. His yeah. name popped up, I think like first. Yeah, it did. So, yeah. which I'm okay with because, yeah. uh, I think his music was the best part of this episode. It was really good. Not to, not to uh, kind of get ahead of my review, <laughs> but his music was amazing. It was refreshing. Way. Like, not that we haven't had his music again recently, but having him do an original score for an episode was like, it, like that, that's great. Like he, yeah, he, we, yeah. we've had reused scores from previous episodes popping up recently, but yeah, this one was made for this and fit it perfectly. Absolutely. So, all right. So we should maybe get into the cast a little bit here and, uh, yep. and yeah, go for it. We got Sarah Marshall who plays Ruth Miller. This is her only twilight zone appearance. Wasn't really familiar with much, uh, else that she's done i, I have a year she's a lot of tv but then the one credit that popped out to me is she was librarian number two in dangerous minds so just want to point that out i don't know why that struck me as odd it's like she wasn't good in, like she wasn't good enough to be library number one but she was librarian number two in dangerous minds she helped change those kids lives so good on her <laughs> And she was in uh, Dave with Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver. I saw that. I didn't. So. I didn't note it, but yeah, like Dave. Uh, like I, I remember liking that movie. I don't remember anything about it. Like that's probably not the best praise for a film, but I enjoyed it when I watched it. Couldn't tell yeah. anything about it. Ving Rhames is in it, so that's something. Well, there you go. <laughs> Already, it, it just shot up again in my mind. It's like that was a good movie. Yeah. Uh, we have Robert Sampson, who plays Chris Miller. I'm very excited to talk about his career <laughs> started out with mostly TV work. And I know Paul, you've been teasing me on this one for I don't weeks wanna, now. I don't want to talk about this anymore. I just, can we stop the episode? I'm done. Can we go <laughs> back? I want to talk more about dead actors that are now in things. Can we just talk about that more? <laughs> no, we're getting to Robert Sampson. Um, so he started out mostly TV work. This is his only twilight zone appearance, but yeah. later on in his career he started doing some B movies and, uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. He played Dean Halsey in reanimator. Mm-hmm. So yeah. very excited uh, to see him pop up in this. And also another Stuart Gordon film that I just watched for the first time over at your house. Yes. yes uh, you did. Last weekend, two weekends ago, yeah. uh, robot jocks. Yes. Um, plays the commissioner or something of that sort. Yeah, I don't, re- <laughs> I don't really recall him in the film cause I was too busy, uh, staking my claim on what I thought the film was going to be. <laughs> and then uh, I, I've, I've, I've talked about this on, on the other show. I do invasion of podcasts is because Steve co-host there was witness to uh, like of all the Hills I choose to die on in my life in terms of pop culture. Why is it robot jocks? I decided to, to die on yeah. a Hill, but I did. And, so um, Paul, <laughs> Paul told us that the main character of robo jocks, robot jocks, robo jocks, just in case, if you haven't listened to the invasion episode, um, he said there was one major character flaw of the main character. Yeah. And he had us guessing the entire movie only to realize that it never shows up in the film. So, and uh, <laughs> that character flaw was that the main, he couldn't read. 
<laughs> but it never shows up within the movie. <laughs> so, so two things. One, I watched this when I like years ago, like, and I, for some reason I, I just, you know, it's, it's the Mandela effect. Like they talk about like, Oh, that had to happen. Like, I don't know why I imprinted in my head that the main character who operates these robot jocks that have these wonderful stop motion miniature fights over like territory in the future. I don't know why I just assumed he's illiterate. Must have just I just must have misunderstood the film at the time. However, my argument is this: um, that was five movies in into a marathon of sitting around and drinking heavily and watching films. And it was a good time. <laughs> I still think the truth is out there, and that there is something in there pointing towards his illiteracy. But I have not taken the time in like the two weeks since we watched that film to watch it a second time while sober to determine it. So I'm still, still going to die on that hill of robot jocks, but with the asterisks of, I could probably still be wrong, but like I just, I don't, there was one line in that <laughs> film that uh, I swear one of the other characters asked him, how is that reading thing going? <laughs> Maybe he's like dyslexic and they just like glanced over it. And I'm like, I just, I, I took it on full on as illiteracy. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I, I you know me, you've known me for a number of years. I don't ever come out swinging with, with knowledge unless I'm like 110% sure that I'm right. And I was so, until proven later, which I will be proven later, I was so wrong about this film in terms of the character flaw <laughs> that I just really thought it'd be fun to call my shot. And then I missed wildly. So, and then to find out that this episode, like which I had seen before our watching of these films that I'm like, Oh crap, this guy's in robot jocks. This would be fun to talk about. <laughs> and then to realize that like, I have a plate full of crow that I have to eat right now until, until I find the one armed man and prove my innocence of this, you know? Well, like. <laughs> I would go back and rewatch it, but I really did not enjoy that movie as much as I thought I was going to. Yeah. It wasn't the end. The ending is abrupt and sudden because they ran out of money. Like, so it was very, um, yeah, I, I need to watch it again just just for my own catharsis. But, you know, like if I said, hey, there's a movie that was in the 80s that was robots fighting each other uh, that was directed by the guy from Reanimator, everybody would be like, sign me up. But I'd be like, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. Maybe not so much. So, yeah. 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 And then uh, <laughs> lastly for Robert Sampson, we have City of the Living Dead from uh, Lucio Fulci, which is another one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, well, is any of the characters in there illiterate? Because I would really like to latch on to that right now. <laughs> uh, actually, there might be one. His, uh, I think the character's name is Bob. Oh, yeah. So. But, you know, anyway, so uh, let's, let's yeah. move on. Let's <laughs> so move on to somebody else. That actually have that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So All right, next up. Yeah, so that was very exciting seeing all those connections in there. Um, Paul's been teasing that for weeks. So I, was, I was excited to see what he was talking about and finally. I, and I will die on that hill. So please continue. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have Charles Aidman, who plays Bill. We previously talked about him all the way back in the episode and when the sky was open, mm -hmm. which was also a Richard Matheson episode based on the short story Disappearing Act. And I'll bring it up just in case. I'm sure we didn't miss it last time, but he was the narrator in the 1980s Twilight Zone series. Yeah, like it was one of those things I saw him like he looks familiar and then I'm like, oh crap. Yeah, that's uh, that's Harrington who disappears yeah. early in the episode and the main character just yells his name out loud in the bar and breaks everything. Yep. So I'm, I'm sure we discussed the narrator part that mm -hmm. he had in the 80s series back then. But just in case, I don't want to miss it. Um, and then two more quick ones. We have Tracy Stratford who plays Tina, the little girl. Um, she was in one other future episode of The Twilight Zone. 
and she was actually the voice of Lucy in a Charlie Brown Christmas. I did not, I did not pick up on that. That's uh considering that we didn't really hear her voice in this episode. I wouldn't have thought of that, but that's, you know, all right, cool. No, but I feel like everyone's seen that. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a pretty big credit and she doesn't have too many credits. Um, and then lastly, we have Rada Williams who plays Tina's voice in this, who this is her only twilight zone appearance. She was mostly a voice actor, did a lot of work for Disney. And most famously, she was the voice of the evil stepsister Drizella in Cinderella. Yeah, that's all I had for her. Um, and then I also have here written a uh, dog as dog. That's uh, important to note that the dog. Yeah, no, no yeah. credit for the dog this no. time. I was, no. I always get excited when there's an animal in these episodes. <laughs> And we get like a fun little backstory, but nothing for the dog. Nope. He just, uh, he just ran away and then he, uh, became a plot point. So yeah, we'll get to that in a second. So yeah, that's it for cast and crew and, um, and much shame brought to my house. So let's just, uh, get on, <laughs> let's just get to the Serling intro, which is one of the, well, we'll get there when we get there, but this is one of my favorite Serling physical intros in, in the series. Oh yeah. 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 This is the best. Missing one frightened little girl. Name, Bettina Miller. Description, six years of age, average height and build. Light brown hair, quite pretty. Last seen being tucked in bed by her mother a few hours ago. Last heard, aye, there's the rub, as Hamlet put it. For Bettina Miller can be heard quite clearly, despite the rather curious fact that she can't be seen at all. Present location, let's say for the moment, in the twilight zone. Or some old man was like, I'll make you a queen. And they just disappeared together. That's, that's a possibility, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, uh, that music under Serling oh. uh, during his intro almost reminded me of hearing it out of context. Almost reminded me of the music for Legend of Hell House, which is also based off of uh, a Matheson work. Yeah. Oh. yeah um really very haunting yes so all right so yeah let's get into the the episode uh proper uh the the music just kicks it all off too like it just starts off with an outside shot of the of the the residence and you just hear the bernard herman score and like it just it, it felt like season one in a good way like just kind of just play setting and I, I just enjoyed it well it, it also looked like the street uh from monsters to do on maple street it did which yeah it, it may have been i'm not sure i couldn't find that for sure um but yeah, it slowly goes into the house and it starts out immediately um, with the sound of a crying girl and like knocking on the wall. There's a little bit crying out for mommy and uh, you slowly go over to the parents room and the dad gets up out of bed and he's going to check on it. You, it seems like it's a typical thing like this happens all the time. So it's kind of his turn to get up and go check on the kid. So he walks past. You see the dog is barking outside on the patio and he goes past and he goes into Tina's bedroom and she's not in her bed. Yeah. And at that point, she kind of she transitioned to calling for her daddy and um, he flips the lights on and he's looking around, getting a little confused at this point, checks under the bed and there's nothing there. She's not in the room at all. Yeah. So two notes about the beds. One, uh, they, the couple was in a a bed together. I thought that was kind of a progressive thing considering that we've seen a lot of, uh, couples in like, you know, a little twin bed separate from each other. So that felt very real. Uh, the lamp in that room was crazy looking and I loved it. Um, that's, I don't know what was going on with that lamp, but I really enjoyed it. But also Tina's bed is like super high. Did you notice that it was like, 
offset by like three feet off the ground. Like the, like the bed itself was a super tall. It was, I'm sure it was meant for the camera movements later, but it was like, that's a really high bed. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe that's why she keeps falling off. Of <laughs> <laughs> if this is a typical thing, I need to get a lower bed. That, that's fair. Um, yeah. But yeah, I like during a lot of these shots in her room, there's a picture of her on the book. I don't know. Dresser, I guess. Yeah. And, um, it's a very brightly lit photo of her that's kind of present throughout the entire episode. I love that. And there is a doll in the closet. I don't know if you noticed it. No, I did not. Pick up, up on the that. top shelf. It's I. It looks like some sort of like monkey or something. But when they're looking for her and you get the Bernard Herman music, you catch glimpses of almost this face up in the closet. And it, it caught me off guard, like at least two or three times in this episode. I'm like, what's that in the closet? <laughs> like it, 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 it's actually pretty effective. I don't know. It, I assume it had to have been done on purpose. I mean, there's not too many other things in these shots in this episode. No, I think you're right. I, I didn't pick up on that the two times I watched this, but yeah, that, that, that feels right. And also like, we'll talk about this later. What this, what this episode inspired that that's a, that's a good call because what it yeah. inspired later yeah. Yeah. So, um, this is, the, I want to talk about how as a kid, I was scared by something uh, like later in life. We'll get there like later, like later in production here, but, uh, but yeah, it yeah. worked great right in this. Cause they're, they're going around the room looking yeah. for Tina and your eyes are looking around in the frame, trying to find something and you catch what looks like a face up in the closet. And, uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of terrifying. Love no, it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, then we get to Chris looking under the bed and then the camera like moves across the floor and then you see Serling's shoes and the, the camera moves up and he, like he's in the room and he gives his intro and it, it is, it is so cool. Like it is a good solid intro and a good reveal of him. And I, I yeah, love it. It's a great loved, reveal. Oh, like it's, it. it's again, it's almost terrifying because you're not expecting someone else to be in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as soon as you kind of come to your senses and it pans up and you see that it's Rod Serling, of course it's, it is. And that's amazing. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> but um, this is, this is definitely one of my favorite intros from Serling in the entire series we've had so far. Yeah. So, so he goes through his intro, which is, which is awesome. Um, yeah. I, I like that, um, that the husband tells the wife is like, we're not going to panic. And then she immediately starts panicking. Like after, like after, Oh yeah, she's panicking <laughs> this entire episode. Which <laughs> it's, it's, it, unfortunately she's not given much to work with, but at the same time, if it's a parent that has lost their child and doesn't know where they're at, that that is the expected response, you know? So I don't, I don't fault her for the portrayal. It's just like, there was not much for her to do other than to be freaked out, which is correct. No. And it, to be honest, the dad didn't have much to do either. Yeah. He just, he just kind of took the shell shocked approach to it where he just, it, it, things were so unreal that he was just, his mind was just shattered <laughs> by everything that was happening. Yeah. Uh, so they're looking for Tina in the room and they can still hear her, but she's not there. So they come, they come to terms that something really weird is going on. So Chris, the dad goes into the other room Dog's still barking outside the whole time. And he calls Bill. <laughs> we don't know who Bill is. I, I assume he was maybe like the neighbor or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so he lets the dog in because he's worried it's going to wake all the neighborhood. 
and the dog runs right into Tina's bedroom, right under the bed, and disappears. And you can hear the dog barking the whole time. As soon as it goes under the bed, it transfers. Uh, the sound is edited, so there's an echo to it. So you know that it's disappeared wherever Tina is. Yeah, and with the sound of a harpsichord or whatever, like a string instrument playing, um, the moment the dog crosses over, so it's like, oh, the dog's barking and playing an instrument. Like yes. it's a like, yeah, very talented dog. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, um, so yeah, the dog disappears, and then we get the entry of Bill. We find out that he is their local physicist. <laughs> I I don't know how I don't know what Chris the dad does, I or what he does for a living. So I don't maybe he's he has to work with a physicist for some reason and uh, knows this guy. But yeah, whatever. He calls a physicist over and he explains him the situation. And Bill is very rational about the whole situation. Well, I like, is, I like that Chris is like, oh, I'm going to look under the house. No, no, no. I'm going to call the physicist first. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> let me check the walls and under the house, see if she got stuck somewhere. <laughs> No, yeah. let me call a physicist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so that that's, the, if I have to say that there's one, one weird thing about the episode, it's just that the immediate introduction of Bill, which I know you need him there for what comes next, but the way they shoehorn him in into the episode is very odd, but I, and, but, yeah. and I'd like to say that the short story, uh, provides more context to his character, but it is as abrupt as it is in this episode in the story. So I have no answer. Our kids are missing. We should probably call Dr. Scientist over. He's like, okay, I'm here. You know, <laughs> here, I'll explain everything to you guys. <laughs> Is your dog missing? That's a sign. You know, like what, what's <laughs> so to be honest, yeah. th- this is my only, uh, misgiving with this episode is the introduction of bill. <laughs> no. So that's it's not terrible. <laughs> yeah. I, I had my notes here, Bill, this is Chris. Can you come over to the house? I mean, I haven't looked everywhere yet, but come on over. Like, I like that, like the idea of this, like, you know, I haven't exhausted all possibilities. Can I just wake you up and you could walk over right now? That's fine. You know, that's what friends do. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So when Bill comes over, um, he comes into the bedroom and there's something I didn't pick up on the first time I watched it. And I'm, and you probably did, but he's like pausing and listening and you can hear Tina breathing. I didn't pick up on the breathing the first time. Oh yeah. Through. It's, yeah. it's terrifying. And it, they make a point of, uh, talking about the breathing in the short story as well. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's weirdly terrifying because where this episode ends up is not exactly where I thought it was going to end up. I mm-hmm. thought it was going to have a little bit more of a malevolent ending. So I was, I was on edge for most of this episode and just Bernard Herman's score, the breathing, the crying, um, the dog barking the whole time. It, it, this episode got under my skin for most of it mm-hmm. um, until things take a turn for the more sci-fi and a um, little bit more bizarre. But when when it's just them searching for the girl and having no answers, this thing actually got under my skin. Yeah, no, it's like because it's so practical, right? Like even though you call your local neighborhood physicist over, they have yes. <laughs> they have a rational conversation about what is and what could be. Like rational as you as rational as you can have with the notion that your daughter's gone and your dog's gone, and you can hear them in the distance, but like like your wife physically saw the dog disappear, you know, like 
there there is a grounded conversation and credit you know to the actor um to to bill um charles aidman for being able to deliver a lot of the exposition but make it feel like grounded in his own observation of science because like yeah so he's looking under the bed and he's like we can we move this bed so they they move it. They mark where the bed goes for some reason. I don't know why that <laughs> yeah. really matters, but whatever. Um, and he's he's looking around. And he can he can hear breathing and everything. He goes to the wall, and as he's touching the wall, one of his arms goes through and just kind of blurs and disappears into the wall. Which I was really shocked to find out that that was all done in camera. Yes, I, that was going to be one of the things I was going to mention later. So they. They set the camera up at an angle because the wall was split, but they just flooded it with light, so you couldn't see the the division. And the way they put the the camera up at an angle, it hid the split, so they're able to do that all in camera. And it's one of those things where it's like that that's that nice thinking in advance to suspend that disbelief, but it was a physical effect. Like it was cool. Yeah it it looks kind of hokey when you're watching it, but. Yeah, I I yeah. gained so much more respect for this episode when I found out that they done that they had done that effect in camera. Like there's a bit later where they throw a coin that sticks to the wall and all of a sudden it goes it just disappears and it's like nah that's we that's lame but we know what you did there but the whole reaching through the wall stuff over and over again was really effective. Yeah, it's really cool. Um Yeah, so he he starts having this whole dialogue about the other dimension that's a fourth dimension and that there are infinite parallel lines that eventually are going to match up with our dimension and cause a gateway, which I guess is fairly accurate to some theories on other dimensions. Yeah. I think it also explains, uh, explains Cleveland potholes during the winter. I think that's also what happens. Oh, there you go. Um, so, I mean, credit to them, because when you're watching the episode, like, I completely zoned out during all this. Because <laughs> I, I just said, in my notes, I put uh, nonsense about the fourth dimension. Um, but apparently there was some research done by Matheson in the short story and in the teleplay on uh, what some physicists actually believed about other dimensions and everything. So, again, like, it sounds kind of hokey when you're watching the episode. Then you find out that it's... Uh, it's actually pulled from something based in science. Yeah, I mean, there's Gained the theory, a little more, more expe- uh, respect for the episode. There, there is the potential for up to twelve different dimensions that are just on the edge of perception. Like there, there's yeah. been a lot of science yeah. talk about that, and the idea that they can line up and create like a whole. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess when you talk about like dimensions we can't see and uh, infinite possibilities, sure. But like with this being the '60s, that was just enough. To be like, yeah, well, that that's reasonable because if 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 our world ends at the edges of our perception and we acknowledge that we can't see everything, then there is the possibility of something, you know, and that is that is terrifying. Yeah, and uh, he he does a good job delivering it, uh, Charles Aidman, and like you said, uh, credit to him because those are some hard lines to deliver believably, (laughs) and he does he does it pretty well. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, yeah, he, he gets some chalk and he's marking off on the wall where this doorway is and how big it is. So he ends up putting some X's and then draws 
I don't really understand why he drew it the way he did, but it looked really cool with the so arcs I'm okay. between the X's. Like, like I guess that was just part of the production, but that someone later on was like, well, no, like that's how you would map some of that. Like, so they kind of stumbled into a correct way of documenting it. Like if you're <laughs> going to present this uh, hypothesis, the arcs would kind of make sense. And it's just, but I think it was more of a dramatic thing. And I liked, it was a nice like visual as he was going along talking about everything. It was, it was, a, it was an interesting scene. Yeah. And, and the way it ultimately looks on the wall yeah. is it looks really cool. So I'm, I'm okay. So, but that's, that's even cooler though, that it's actually based on something. So, so. spoiler <laughs> uh, in the Simpsons thing you've not seen, there's, there's a bit where Homer's trying to avoid hanging out with Patty and Selma because they have a slideshow of a vacation they took. So he's trying to run away and hide. And, um, and the, uh, Bart and Lisa hide in a closet, but he hides behind a bookcase and he ends up finding this, uh, th- like he, he starts to fall behind the bookcase cause there's a portal there and he ends up like his choices, unknown mystery portal or his, like his sister's-in-law. So he runs to the portal. Um, <laughs> so then they bring over uh, professor Finkelman. I think that's his name. And he, or Fink, like, uh, and he draws out like where the portal is and it's exactly like this with the X's and the arcs. And that's the thing. I'm just like, Oh crap. They pulled this direct from the Twilight Zone, uh, so it's just interesting the callbacks that they specifically referenced, and I just I just never knew. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that, yeah. That, so then we get the uh, coin bit that you were talking about. He decides to throw a coin in, um, and it sticks to the wall and disappears. Same thing that yeah. you were saying before. Um, and at that point, they can't hear Tina anymore, and uh, Ruth. Which, another fun fact, Ruth and Tina are actually named after um, Matheson's wife and daughter. Mm-hmm. Their actual names. But, yeah, Ruth, the mother, starts freaking out again. So, Bill has them go around the house, start calling for Tina, and try and see if they can hear her anywhere else in the house. And he explains that her movements may not be a lot in our world, but it may appear to be more because she's in this other dimension. So they're going around the house looking for, and they can kind of hear her in different spots over by the, like the ceiling in the one room. And they eventually find her over by, I guess would be the bar in the living room. Yeah. And, um, so they're able to kind of talk to her and they can hear the dog in there. Mac, uh, I guess we haven't mentioned the dog's name yet in the episode, but they can hear Mac. So they're calling to the dog and you hear Tina, talking interacting with the dog and saying that the dog's trying to lead her somewhere so bill is telling them like tell her to go with the dog just tell her to go um so they tell her to go with wherever max taking her and they go back to the doorway and they're calling for the dog trying to lead the dog back to the entrance but it, it it's taken her a long time to get there you can tell that something's wrong they're having trouble finding the exit or the doorway yeah, I just put my notes here that I think I also find most of my answers in crying in the liquor cabinet as well. So I just want to point out <laughs> that, that I feel that was very, very um, you know, um, easy evident. to connect with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah, the whole thing is like they believe that like the dog's going to respond to Chris and um, and oh, the wife, which you just told, said her name Ruth. Uh, Ruth. Ruth. Uh, and so they're like they're like call to the dog, make it, you know he will he will come to you, and so they're waiting. And it, but then it's, it becomes apparent, like you said, that like, 
yeah, it's it may not work out like exactly as they're hoping. But but Bill is worried that like because Chris wants to go immediately. He wants to jump in and try to find his daughter and and dog. And Bill's like, you don't know what's over there. And we've already basically his his apprehension is you already hear how we can't like locate her. There's no guarantee that if you go through this, that we're going to locate you. And which is a very valid concern. But Chris is also, you know, he's a father trying to find his daughter. So he kind of dams the torpedoes and like, I I forget if he just falls in by accident or if he just kind of jumps in, but either way he's in there. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I kind of want to go back a minute. I was expecting, again, I was on, I was expecting something more malevolent happening here. So when things weren't, when they were trying to lead the dog back and there was that delay, I was worried about what was going to come out of the doorway. Okay. And so I was, you're more I was worried kind about of expecting like, something okay. um, to come out. Maybe I, I, I'm not sure what I thought was going to happen, but I thought it was going to be something more malevolent than what actually ended up occurring. Um, but yeah, he kind of falls in. He goes to like reach in to see if he can grab her or the dog. And uh, he ends up falling in. And then we get to some of the weirder, more sci-fi elements of this episode, um, which were cool. Were definitely uh, interesting. Um, I mean, so it it looked like they were shooting this whole scene through reflections. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then they had like weird orbs and fog. And it was like a star background in one of the rooms. But they were shooting it through a reflection and kind of warping the shot and in post-production spinning the frame like upside down, spinning around in circles. Yeah, it's like, so it was really disorienting. It's like he and, fell uh, into like the Merv Griffin show or something, but they kept turning the camera upside down like, <laughs> like the entire time. <laughs> but like, but like, how else do you represent the fourth dimension? Like what, what is, what does that even mean? You know, like it was, it was cool having them shoot it. Like all these like, like distorted reflections and, and the sound, the sound design, it was limited, but like the best they could do then, like everything was just like chaotic. And like, it, it's like you, you get the sense that like Chris doesn't know what's going on, but he's just trying to call out to his daughter. And, and Bill was like, don't move. Basically saying, I know you're in there. Don't, don't move around. Cause, cause that's the, that's the best we're going to do of like locating you is just to stay still. But it was, yeah. it was a trippy sequence and I, I appreciated it. Yeah, and uh, Matheson in the short story doesn't really do much to describe it. He spends a lot of time talking about how every movement he made with his body would make like a whistling sound, and it would eventually turn into the sound of like uh, flocks of birds flying around him. So it, it described more of like the audio perception of what it was like in the fourth dimension, but didn't really do much as far as visuals. So they kind of had free reign and not to be held down by what Matheson was going for with that, with shooting this thing. And, um, I think they did a pretty good job. Like it, it was disorienting. It looked really cool. Um, and that's, that's all you can really ask for (laughs) from something from 1962, trying to pull this type of thing off. Yeah, no, I have, I have a note here. I guess I'll get into this right now. Um, so, uh, the art director on the episode was, uh, Merrill Pyle. And so, um, Let's see here. Uh, there's okay. Two things I'll, I'll I'll talk about right now. Supposedly this episode was the inspiration for Poltergeist. Um, in a lot I of ways, I can definitely see yeah. that. I was going to bring that up at some yeah. point. Um, so basically, 
Uh, there's, there's, uh, Spielberg asked to see this, this tape specifically from Matheson and then Poltergeist was made and the Matheson got a check. So there, there's some parallels there. Right. But, um, where's the line here? Um, yeah, I was half expecting them to tie like a rope onto him yeah, when he right. was going in to try and find the dog and Tina. No, it, 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 like there's shoot. Where did I have it at? There was a note about basically in the script uh, that the teleplay that Matheson wrote said that um, uh, talking about the fourth dimension, he said then and then then Meryl Pyle was seen running, screaming down the street into the night. Basically, he knew who was going to be the art director. And when he got to the fourth dimension section was like, and the art director won't know what to do and he'll run mad into the streets. And he wrote that <laughs> into the teleplay. Uh, just basically being like you, like you said, do what you want with this. But he just like it was kind of a joke of like good luck, like kind of thing. So, <laughs> so I um I appreciate that that he specifically wrote in a note for the art director of like I don't know something like <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a daunting task. I mean yeah. you can get away with uh, describing less. Yes, with uh you know with literature. I mean look at Lovecraft and all that. Like describing the undescribable is way easier than filming the undescribable. Yeah. Like being like, he stared into the unknowable face of terror. It's like, you're right. Let's, yeah, let's perfect. shoot that. I yeah, got perfect. it. That's yeah. terrifying. Um, shoot that. Yeah. <laughs> like put that on film. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, where did I have that? I, I guess it doesn't matter. I just, uh, but, but yeah, we'll talk more about, uh, Matheson's re- response to other handlings of his work here when we get done with this. But yeah, I like that he called out Merrill Pyle. I thought that was funny. So anyway, let's finish the story. Yeah. So he eventually, they find each other in the fourth dimension after a few minutes and, uh, Bill pulls them all back in. Yeah. And you find out that Bill had a hold of his legs the entire time. He didn't quite make it all the way through. Um, and he told him he was he was hurrying him the whole time he was in there, and you find out that the wall was closing up, and yeah. that's kind of the end of the episode. They saved him. They saved the uh, Tina and the dog, and um, the walls closed and everything's over. Well, then you get that that wonderful Serling like kind of patching over everything of the saying, and then scientists came and no one knew what happened. The Twilight Zone, like it was. Kind yeah, of one of well, those, that's how the short yeah. story ends up. They end up having to leave. Uh, the short story takes place in a one bedroom apartment rather than a house. And um, it, rather in her bedroom, she's sleeping on the couch. So they end up having to leave for a few weeks because they're just physicists and scientists that took over the apartment, trying to find out what was going on in there. Um, and then there's a joke at the very end. They move the, they put the couch against the wall and move the TV because they were able to hear a voice by the TV rather in the bar in the short story. They moved the TV over where the portal was. And um, eventually they could hear Arthur Godfrey's voice coming from the fourth dimension. And he leaves a little joke about it. Like maybe it's better off that he stays there. (laughs) So the whole short story ends on kind of a a dig on Arthur Godfrey, the broadcaster. Yeah. Weird. Um, yeah, it was it was very strange because like up to then it was pretty much beat for beat outside of the setting, rather it being like the couch and the bed and everything. But it was pretty much beat for beat the entire time, and that ends with with a joke on this broadcaster that like yeah maybe it's better off he ends up there. 
weird yeah 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 it's funny but yeah they spend a little bit more time talking about how the scientists they threw like some uh folding tables over the hole in the floor in the dimension and um eventually just it got out to the community that there was something weird going on with the dimensional (laughs) hole so the scientists just took over their apartment for a few months (laughs) and couldn't find anything i like the idea it's like oh no 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 if we move the tv closer to the bar that that's better for science. It just finds out they're just drinking and watching TV. That would, yeah. that would make more sense to me. <laughs> um, so yeah, like I like so it ends on an upbeat note in the sense of like the family's made whole. The 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 hole between worlds is closed. As, as as creepy as it is, like they like there's no ramifications of the family, which you know that's fine. But you're right. I was expecting like something maybe a little bit more sinister at the end, but like this is kind of ends on that note of like, and they're all good and we don't know what happened. Like, and that was like, all right, yeah. well, you know, but they, it gives yeah. the implications of like, this can happen anywhere. Yeah. Which, which is kind of terrifying. And I'm sure at the time watching this episode, um, that's just, that's a chilling thought. Well, that and that's the origin this can pop up next to your bed. It could, um, and you know, maybe, maybe that's what we'll, maybe on a Monday I'll be like, I don't want to go to work. I'm just going to roll into this uh, dimensional hole. and be fine. I've, uh, I've tried to walk into the wall many times. <laughs> I mean, Homer, I've yet to disappear. <laughs> Homer chose, you know, not hanging out with his uh, sisters in law. And he went to the, to the third dimension. That was the joke there is that there was this whole rumored <laughs> third dimension. And my favorite line from that is like, he's like, he's like talking to the family in the house. And it's that same like echoing type of voice that you heard in this episode. And he was like, he's like, um, um, they're like, where are you at Homer? And he's like, I'm someplace where I don't know where I am. They're like, do you see towels? Are you in the towel closet? Like in the linen closet? <laughs> and then the sisters are like, uh, the sister laws are like, maybe it's the shower. Like, like basically, the, <laughs> the, but yeah. So, um, yeah, like I, um, this was, this was a nice, like, kind of like, we haven't had a Matheson episode in a bit and it was a nice, as grounded as you can get sci-fi type of little story. And I, I'm sure yeah, you it was read a good, good blend of sci-fi and horror. Yeah. And I, you probably read in your research that this was based upon an experience that he had where Matheson walked into his, uh, you know, daughter's bedroom and she had rolled against the wall and he couldn't find her initially, but he could hear her. And then the seed got planted in his head. So like, you know, that's just kind of how this works sometimes of like a real life event of like, I couldn't find you for a second. Oh, but what if? You know, like, yeah. What it, what if I could never find you and hear you? Yeah. Though? Like, so perfect. that that's that's a nice like origin. And like I said, this uh, directly influenced Poltergeist in a lot of ways. And you talk about the the face being like seen. I I'm sure the terror in my mind in Poltergeist is not nearly as extravagant as it is in the film. But watching that film as a kid with the clown thing in the chair in the one kid's bedroom has yeah. never left me and has bothered me since I was a kid seeing it. So yeah, like, uh, if that inspired that, then screw that clown in that chair. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go after we finish this episode, I'm going to go back on, uh, on the Netflix and pull a shot of that and see no. if I can enhance it and get a little bit closer and no, post I'm good. it on the I'm Facebook good. page. That's fine. Don't do it. It's, we don't have to have that happen. It's fine. No one needs to see that. No. Um, well, no, not from, not from Polder guys from this episode. I just, I yeah, know the I, thing I, in the closet. <laughs> it's fine. Okay. It's, it is not fine. No. So, um, all right. Um, 
what had happened previously with a couple of different maths and uh, stories, he was not happy with how some of his, his other, his stories have been handled like recently. And what, what I'm meaning is that when we talked about the invaders, he didn't like Douglas Hayes' interpretation of that story, which is beyond me. I, I know he didn't like the way the, like the, the humans looked in their spacesuits, but he didn't like Douglas Hayes' interpretation of the story and was kind of pissed about it. So yeah. when this one was which coming, caused him to go back and, take a stab at that idea again, no pun intended and write the play at the, the prey short story they put out years after. Yeah. So Sterling wrote to him directly and said that they would handle this one, this, this script a little bit more seriously. So there is some speculation about why they got Bernard Herman directly to make the music for this episode, because it's, it's, it's kind of implied that Sterling was like, okay, Madison, we'll, we're going to do this one right because Herman was overseas at this time. He was in Europe. So they had to contact him. Like it, it was very, you know, for what, 62, uh, it was a very uh, complicated uh, time to be like, hey, you're overseas. Can you write the score for this episode? So this, there's a lot of speculation that, that he was brought in specifically to make Matheson happier with his role on the show of providing stories to show that his work is being treated seriously. Yeah, well, apparently it worked because yeah. he did what eight more episodes after this. Yeah, so so good on Serling to be like, no, 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 we're going to do this one right. So like, and and I feel like this episode succeeds more than it fails. Obviously, I think the whole like bringing Bill in just to get him there that was a bit weird, but otherwise this thing was it was firing off on all cylinders for me. Even though the ending was like it was a soft landing, I was okay with it. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean. It, our twist ratings are going to be weird on this one, but yeah. yeah, my, my only two issues really with this, um, obviously bill being introduced, but once you get past that, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Um, and then I, I saw some other people complain about it as well. The voiceover of the little girl being done by Rada Williams yeah. was kind of weird and off at certain times, but at the same time, it being a little bit off, added something to this episode. So yeah, those are the only two things I felt like weren't completely firing at a hundred percent, but that's fair. I just, I mean with, with child actors at that time, I don't know what kind of, I don't know what you could have. Yeah, done. She, yeah. she probably wouldn't have been able to pull it off yeah. as well. I'm, I'm assuming, but she ended up being known for her voice work too. So yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's weird. I yeah. don't know. It's, it is weird, but yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so no, this was a good episode. It was a nice, uh, nice palate cleanser, so to speak from, uh, not that I'm saying I just liked, like, I liked the fugitive. It was, you know, like the fact that like we only did like two weeks ago. What episode like, was that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we just had like, you know, like some stuff recently that has had potential, but not delivered on it. And I feel like this one, it set the stage and it, it did deliver on it. And again, for, for the story it was telling and for what the challenges that it had to translate that story, I think that it succeeded and I, and I liked it. I, is this going to be my top five for the season? I don't know, but it was, it was good. It was kind of good to get back to like, Oh, this is what the twilight zone is capable of doing of like, a, like parents in a house and they can't find their kid. Like that is, that's a hell of a setup. You know, like them wandering all over the house, trying to find her voice in different objects was a little weird, but you know, like you had to kind of get the point across to the audience that Tina is not in this like, you know, physical plane. So them hearing yeah. her in the liquor cabinet is not, it's not, you know, it's not unusual. Like 
per Bill's hypothesis, right? So, there, yeah. Well, I thought it was a testament to how well they sold me on the premise. When Bill comes in and they move the bed, and there's maybe a two minute scene of him just feeling around in the air mm-hmm. with the parents staring at him, just <laughs> crawling around on the floor, just <laughs> putting his arms through there. And I was completely bought in in the scene. I mean, that's a testament to uh, how much they sell this episode. Yeah. Um, like that scene in lesser hands would have been terrible. Like, what if he had been wrong? It'd been like, Bill, what are you doing? He's like, I think there's a di- like a hole between dimensions. And like, <laughs> he touches all the walls. It's like, Bill, I know you're a physicist, but like, can we check under the house now? Like, no, 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 there's a hole here. Like, I could, like, <laughs> I mean, it's at least a minute and a half of him just like waving his arms through the air like, and crawling around on the floor with the parents staring at him. Like it, it cuts to a car with the Tina in the trunk just driving away. Bill's like, no, 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 I got this. Like figuring it out, touching the wall. Like, but I mean, in lesser hands, like I would have been cracking up at that scene, oh, but I was completely yeah. invested. Yeah. It, it felt like something was very wrong when no, you're watching that he, scene. He was earnest yeah. and he was he was astute in his... His delivery, like you, you said that you said it right. Like he, he believed it. Like, and it was like you know, I, I there, there's a conviction there that carries it, and it worked very well. Yeah, and without that, it. I mean, that could have been the funniest scene out of any of these episodes ever. <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, um, yeah. What what if uh, what if uh, what was his name? Uh, Heimner, what the guy from the Hunt? What if he was the the guy they brought in as the scientist? Oh, God. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> with his dog yeah 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 oh oh i hear there's a raccoon in the wall and then the dog would just run away yeah um yeah anyway so yeah um i guess we should just just because it is part of the show we should just uh try to rate this twist for what it is yeah good luck on this one i'm gonna give it a two just because it didn't end as darkly as i thought it was going to that's that's about where I'm at with that, where the premise is pretty horrific to begin with, but it ends on a happy note. I didn't see that it ending on that. Everybody kind of made it out scot-free. Like I didn't see that coming. Yeah, I, I figured um, I figured they were going to save Tina. I, I didn't think they were going to mess around with killing off any kids or anything in this episode. Um, but I didn't necessarily see the idea of the portal closing. And that kind of thing. So I, I'm going to go with the two as well. It wasn't necessarily like a great twist or anything. And I no. was, I was hoping for something more sinister, but I, I wasn't surprised. Well, I like the implication that Bill was like, if I didn't pull you out, then there would have been part of you here and part of you there. Like that whole, like, yeah, yeah um, you would have been um, cut in half. Maybe if I didn't grab you at that time, that would have been bad. So yeah, I, but yeah. like I mentioned earlier yeah. too, I, I like I like the implication that of like this can happen anywhere. Yeah. And that being the takeaway of the episode. You can that, see. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. It's just, that's the takeaway of the episode that you're going to leave the viewers with. That's ultimately going to end up frightening them you after can, they leave the show. 
you can see the domestic like kind of like horror like at home like like the the small made big you can see where Stephen King like you know kind of bows down to Matheson like he loves Matheson's work and you can yeah, see how this yeah. completely influenced his whole like you know you know these are normal people but then things just get weird like you this this doesn't feel too many steps away from a Stephen King short story either you know so yeah like, this is yeah. kind of like the the blueprints for uh Matheson yeah from uh here on out with his stuff so yeah uh, so it's cool it's cool to see matheson uh getting his <laughs> a good production and a good story being done on the, and on the show an amazing score we've talked about it previously but the, the music through all of this was was awesome so yeah. yeah what was the last matheson episode we've covered <sighs> i'm trying to think uh Oh, you're gonna put um, me on the spot, and I'm I'm not gonna. Me here. <laughs> here, I just I just found it. Oh. Once upon a time with the time helmet. Oh, yeah. He so. was he was pissed off about that too. I didn't put it in my notes, but he was just like kind of frustrated with how that all came together. So you're right. That yeah. was not too that far was the ago. one in yeah. between Invaders. I knew there was one after Invaders. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, helmet. this was a nice redemption for a Matheson story. Well, what if this. Bill had been working wearing a time helmet? We walked in. He's like, ah, this guy got to take this off. Like, oh, you guys are dealing with dimensions. I was dealing with time for a second. I'm sorry. It got weird. Uh, and there's <laughs> or some Bill chicken. pulls him out. And yeah. Tina's wearing the time helmet. Yeah, and a chicken just runs free. You're like, what? what is going on here, you know? Uh, yeah. So, all right. Yeah, that's going to do it for Little Girl Lost. Um, good episode. I, I dug it quite quite a bit. So, Kevin, how can people find us? Yeah. Uh, before I get to that, I yeah. want to mention uh, the book that I purchased um, from Richard Matheson. I should have had this brought up. It's called Duel and, and Other Terror, I believe. Okay, so meaning duel as in the the the, the TV movie. Yeah, a dual terror story. So it's a okay. collection of short stories from Richard Matheson. And one of those is Duel, which was the Spielberg TV movie, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's like eight bucks on Kindle. Um, oh, I nice. think you can get the paperback for like five dollars. So definitely check it out. I've uh, I just keep adding these short story collections to my library. <laughs> Every time we come across something that I don't already own, I end up just purchasing. So. Eventually, by the time we get to the end of the uh, end of like season five, I'm going to own every short story collection by every author that worked with the Twilight Zone, <laughs> which is not a bad thing to have in your library. No, not at all. No, it's getting expensive <laughs> because I'm like, oh, I need this one short story. I guess I'll buy this ten dollar book. <laughs> well, but at least at least with Matheson, like you can't go wrong. Like, I mean, no, I, exactly. Yeah. If I if I don't read them for the show, I'll eventually get uh, caught up with the rest yeah. of them. So. Right. It's one of those things. Like I'm not, I'm not going to turn down <laughs> buying a Matheson book. Like, no, all right, I'm in. Um, but yeah, um, so you can get a hold of us. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Strange Highways Podcast. You can email us and leave us voicemails at strangehighwayspodcast at gmail dot com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, Satchel, pretty much anywhere podcasts are found. And it would really help us out if you'd head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a five star review. And uh, let's get the word out. Yeah. We got the the new season with the Jordan Peele Twilight Zone coming out soon. So things are about to get hectic for us. So let's get <laughs> yeah. the word out there. <laughs> no kidding. I, again, set, set this up. It could be easy to talk about a show from the 60s. Oh, no, there's more coming. So that, that is the best problem to have. You know, like, oh, there's good production, high high production value and good people making a show. I suppose we'll talk about it. So, uh, all right. So next episode is not a Jordan Peele episode. Um, 
it's called person or persons unknown. And you're, you're going to enjoy, uh, this, 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 uh, tease for multiple reasons. I'll get to it. <clears throat> Next week, we again borrow from the considerable talents of Charles Beaumont, and we take a fast trot on the wild side. Picture, if you will, a man who wakes up in a strange world, knows everyone, knows every place, feels very much at home. The strangest comes from the fact that no one knows him. Try this one on for size on the next Twilight Zone. It's called Person or Persons Unknown. Habit is something you do when pleasure is gone, and certainly this is not the way to smoke. I prefer to smoke Chesterfields and get the rich taste of 21 great tobaccos. Blended mild, not filtered mild, smoke for pleasure, smoke Chesterfields. <laughs> is that the part I was going to love? Both, no, no, it was the Beaumont. And then, and, okay, and then, all right, Beaumont and, and cigarettes. The, and the hard, <laughs> that, you know what? Can we just change the name of this podcast to Beaumont and cigarettes? That would be the greatest <laughs> Well, once we get through Twilight Zone, maybe we'll just change this to a Beaumont uh, show. We'll just review a short story. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, no, I I figured you'd appreciate that we're getting more Beaumont, and I figured you'd appreciate, like, you know, the the, the pivot into the Chesterfields, like, ad. So, um, yeah. Yeah, Serling was the master at segues into advertising. But, like, like, really, it's called habit of something you do when pleasure is gone. It's like, well, that's dark. (laughs) (laughs) That has no tie-in to the episode no, teaser. It's no. just like, hey, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I had no idea how to tie these cigarette ads in. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So yeah, next week, person or persons unknown with Charles Beaumont and Chesterfield. So we'll, uh, I've not seen this episode. We, uh, it'll be, uh, it'll be fun to get back to some Beaumont after having, I feel like Beaumont and Matheson are like two sides of a scale, like in the sense of like Beaumont's like, yeah, what if? And, Bo- and, and Matheson's like, what if? But with science, you know, I feel like that's some good, yeah. some good, uh, some good balance there. So I'm yeah. just worried. Uh, uh, loss of identity. Uh, <laughs> definitely haven't covered an episode that's dealt with that yet. No, not at all. Oh. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's my only concern. But yeah. I'm excited. I'm always down for some Beaumont. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go do it for this this week. I can't talk anymore. I'm so I'm so distraught that I've uh, not found my daughter or dog. That's not true. Um, but yeah, we'll see you next week for person or persons unknown. And in the meantime, I guess, uh, I don't know, Carrie, just keep some chalk in your pocket in case if you find a fourth dimensional hole to mark, I was going to say, just don't fall out of bed. All your problems are solved.